In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope the sun is shining. I hope the uh, birds are singing and the wind is at your back. I got a great show for you today. The one and only, the legendary Dr. Brian Roth, the Michael Hooker Distinguished Professor of University of North North Carolina, Chapel Hill, as well as a member of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences, the Roth Lab. The man behind it has an incredible team of people working with him, a long-standing interest in the design, engineering, and evolution of proteins for designated functions. The Roth Lab perfected the chemogenetic technology they have named DRED, Designer Receptor Exclusively Activated by Designer Drugs. This technology has afforded thousands of labs worldwide the opportunity to discover how cell type specific modulation of signaling is translated into behavior and non-behavioral outcomes. Brian, Dr. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm Happy living to be the... here. Fantastic. You're on the looks like you're over on the West Coast. Is that accurate? Yeah, today I am in Oregon. Yeah. So right. I spend part-time here in Oregon. I'm on the coast. I don't know if you can see. It's a little cloudy out there. I would turn the turn the thing around, but you can see the ocean out there. There are whales out there cavorting in the waves and everything yeah very nice yeah what an amazing time to be out there in oregon when you get to see the uh decriminalization of of uh medicinal mushrooms happening out there yeah yeah psilocybin is now legal in oregon (laughs) imagine that imagine that it's so crazy did you ever think that that day would come when you started working on psychedelics back in the 80s never no I never, I never imagined it. Uh, I never thought that these would ever, uh, that psychedelic drugs and other, other drugs of abuse, basically drugs of, of abuse or use, whatever, um, find therapeutic indications, but, uh, here we are. It's a new, it's a new era, right? 
<laughs> yeah, it is a new era. You know, it, it reminds me, I, so much of, of our research and discovering novel ideas comes from language. And I know in a previous podcast, you had spoken to Nick about the, the, the terminology and the language we use, whether it's um, terming new things or, or in a heightened state of awareness, it seems that we find ourselves with experiences that are ineffable. We don't have the words to describe them. And I'm wondering how, how does that play out? Like when you are when you are trying to find novel compounds, what's the relationship with with novel compounds and language? So I don't I don't think about that too much. To be to be honest with you, right, right. Uh, but what I've noticed. Uh, so let, let me just sure. Let me just sort of address this from a historical perspective. Okay, Please. I think that might be the best. So um, before we had the word psychedelic, there was the term psychoactive. And uh, psychoactive was a term that was coined, I think, in the early 50s for drugs like uh, LSD. So LSD was known in the 50s. Um, amphetamines are psychoactive uh, and so on. And it was, it was just sort of a general term for drugs that, that modify the brain. And so ethanol would be a psychoactive drug, alcohol, for instance, nicotine is a psychoactive drug. Um, and uh, in, I think in the middle fifties, uh, there was uh, the suggestion that the term psychedelic be used for drugs like LSD and mescaline. Um, so at that, at that time, uh, LSD and mescaline were the, were the only known psychedelic drugs. And so they were distinguished from other psychoactive drugs that were known at the time, <clears throat> which include all, all the ones I mentioned, along with uh, marijuana. At the time, the active ingredient of marijuana was actually not known to be THC. Um, and uh, ibogaine as well. So ibogaine was also something that was known at the time. And uh, the person who invented the term psychedelic had actually sampled all of those compounds. So they were, they were all legal in the 50s. Uh, you could probably order them from a chemical supply house. And uh, he felt and others felt that had taken most of the people in that era had taken LSD. They hadn't taken psilocybin. Um, and he felt that, uh, that these dr drugs like LSD were unique in that they, they had this mind sort of expanding or mind revealing uh, aspect to them. Um, and when I got in the field of, uh, when I started studying psychedelic drugs and their receptors in the early 80s, uh, this had expanded somewhat. So there were among, in psychoactive drugs, now we had drugs that were stimulants. So these are drugs like amphetamine, cocaine, uh, caffeine is a stimulant. Uh, we had sedative, sedative hypnotic drugs. Uh, anxiolytics, these are drugs like uh, Valium, benzodiazepines, things like that. Um, and, uh, and then we had uh, 
psychedelic drugs. No, sorry. Then we had hallucinogens. Mm. So among hallucinogens would be would have been considered psychedelics. So these these con these consisted of LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, and their analogs, which all mediated their effects through a single receptor in the brain, particular serotonin receptor called the 5-HT2A receptor. So those were all considered psychedelic drugs. And then we had other hallucinogens um, that, uh, like ketamine, which are dissociative anesthetic agents by nature. So ketamine, PCP, so PCP and ketamine, pretty much the same mechanism of action, different duration of action, different sort of intensity of action, but both have the same, same basic effect. Um, and then we had uh, drugs like uh, scopalamine mm -hmm. from uh, Amanita muscarina, which is the, another type of hallucinogenic mushroom. And these are technically drugs that cause a delirium. So, uh, so I'm a physician uh, and uh, delirium, the delirium is something that is completely different from a psychedelic experience. So in delirium, by definition, people are not oriented to space and time or even person. And uh, when people take psychedelics, if you ask them where they are, they still basically know where they are. They know the date, they know, they know who they are. Um, and that's, that's not the case with uh, drugs that induce a delirium. And then we have this other, this other interesting class of drugs called uh, onirogens. We now call them onirogens. And these are drugs that induce a dreamlike state. Uh, and these are drugs like ibogaine and uh, salvinorin A, which comes from the uh, plant salvia divinorum. Um, and then there's, there's another class of drugs completely separate from hallucinogens that we call um, intactogens or empathogens. Mm -hmm. And these are drugs like MDMA or ecstasy. So up until, I don't know, four or five years ago, maybe three years ago, um, I would say this was the standard language that we use to describe these drugs. And uh, then something happened. So uh, now if you go to the popular literature and even mm -hmm. among scientists, uh, many of the drugs that I discussed, so ketamine, uh, the psychedelics, um, even ecstasy are considered to be psychedelics. Um, but I would, I mean, ordinarily we would just call those psychoactive drugs. Um, but it's what I what I mentioned to to others is that um, in the future it will basically depend on how people use these terms. So if everybody in the world except for me decides that psychedelics include ketamine, ecstasy, LSD, salvia, ibogaine, uh, scopalamine. And they refer to those, then then those will be psychedelics, basically. <laughs> and and then we have then we would have basically serotonergic psychedelics. So mm. these are drugs like LSD and you know then others. Um, and it's it's a continual uh, 
I wouldn't say battle, sure. but continual conversation I have with people that, you know, up until recently, these all these drugs had a different meaning. Um, and actually, if you look at how the Drug Enforcement Agency, the mm, Food and Drug yeah. Administration, and the European Medicines Association classifies drugs and how pharmacologists classify right. drugs, basically, they use the classification scheme that I use. Um, so it's... <laughs> so I, I don't know what to do, basically. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting relationship to think yeah. how one influences the other. Like, it seems to me that there would be lots of pressure to call this certain class psychedelics if all this class is being layered into a therapy in a retreat somewhere. Like, I could see a right. business interest wanting it that way. It's a sexy term. Sure, sure. It, did, and it, it didn't used to be sexy. So before... <laughs> Before three or four years ago, I didn't use the term psychedelic in my papers. Mm -hmm. I used the term hallucinogen. Mm. Um, basically because um, it wasn't considered a, I don't know, it was just not in common use. Uh, it, was, it was generally more appropriate to consider them hallucinogens. And most people didn't, didn't really get the, you know, psychedelic versus non-psychedelic thing so yeah so i think so maps in particular so there's this uh company the multi or organization the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies probably have the biggest uh footprint in this area and uh they actually don't study psychedelics they study ex you know most of their most of their work is based on ecstasy right and um Ecstasy is not even a hallucinogen. So um, I, I've never taken it, but I've, I've, you know, talked with, you know, a large number of people who've taken ecstasy. And it's really more like, you know, it has a stim sort of a stimulant action. So mm -hmm. people enjoy dancing and, and then also this, this action of increasing empathy, basically, and a feeling yeah. of connectedness. Um, so I like the term pathogen. Okay. Uh, but but really drugs like ecstasy really is is really closer in action to amphetamine. Um, the dip, the big difference between ecstasy and say methamphetamine, for instance, is that ecstasy uh, promotes the release of multiple neurotransmitters, norepinephrine, serotonin, uh, and dopamine to a great extent. Uh, serotonin. So it's a very strong serotonin releaser, but also releases lots and lots of dopamine and norepinephrine. Whereas methamphetamine is pretty selective for dopamine, um, as is cocaine. Mm. Um, and, uh, but, but they basically have identical mechanisms of action and, um, you know, differ in their subjective effects. Uh, and, and that's the same for cocaine and amphetamine. Cocaine and amphetamine have different objective effects, but you wouldn't call cocaine a psychedelic, right? <laughs> right, agreed. I mean, nobody would. Uh, so it's, um, I think it's, my guess is it's branding. Sure. And uh, PR and this sort of thing. Yep. But um, the thing about it is uh, because of the way language works, if people use the term to include all those drugs, then they're all psychedelics, basically, by definition.
it'd be like if if I decided to call the color green Gorn. Okay, <laughs> if I made up this term Gorn. Right. And if everybody in the world agreed with me, then it would be Gorn. It would no longer be green. <laughs> right. The truth is what people agree on, right? It's a yes. it's a perceived reality. For language. For language. Language. Yeah. 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 You know, th this kind of is, it kind of ties into the subjective effects of classic psychedelics. Like it's very difficult to measure what's happening in there, right? When we, we do right. use, we rely on these subjective terms, but it seems that in your lab, you've figured out some ways to really figure out, like maybe you can explain some of the testing you're doing in there to really understand what's happening. Like, is it really connecting to the, to the two A or is it, is this new track B going in there or, what, what's the mechanism of action that you've seen of lately in some of the new papers coming out with, with the serotonin receptors and classic psychedelics? Yeah. So in terms of the psychedelic actions, mm -hmm. um, so these, so when somebody takes LSD, they have a psychedelic experience. That's immediately, that's what they, for the next 12 to 18 hours, basically. Right. And same with psilocybin or mescaline or DMT. Right. Um, and so there's no question that the psychedelic experience is mediated by activation of a single receptor in the brain. That's the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. And the reason that that's known with great certainty is that human studies have been done uh, primarily by uh, Franz Vollenweider's group at Switzerland uh, starting in the 80s. So I think his first, or 98, I think his first paper was published in 1998 on this. And what he showed was that if he pretreated humans with a drug that blocks 5-HT2A receptors and then administered LSD or psilocybin, the effects were gone, basically. Um, and similar studies are done and have similar experiments have been done in animal studies, basically showing the same thing. And in mice, you can genetically delete the 5-HT2A receptor and the psychedelic drug-like actions are gone, basically. So there's, I think there's no question at all that the psychedelic effects are mediated by the 5-HT2A receptor. The, the question comes though, how, how is this related to the potential therapeutic actions of these drugs? Mm. So um, we have the best data for therapy for psilocybin. There are now, um, I think uh, two or maybe three fairly well-controlled uh, phase two, what are called phase two clinical trials with psilocybin, small, small number of patients still. But um, what they show, what they showed was that either one or two doses of psilocybin was effective at treating depression for um, periods ranging from 24 days to a year, basically depending on the follow-up in the particular study. And, um, and of course, the, the beneficial effects of psilocybin uh, occur after the psychedelic experience is over. And so the question has arisen, are, are, the, are the beneficial effects mediated through psilocybin, you know, activating something downstream of the 5-HT2A receptor, or is it some other target in the brain? And um, there's a huge debate about this right now. Um, my, and, uh, there are, there was recently a paper, I think you're probably referring to 
suggesting that this um, this growth factor receptor in the brain uh, for brain-derived neurotrophic factor can also be modulated by LSD and psilocybin. So that that's a brand new uh, discovery, uh, just reported in the last month or so by a group at Hopkins. Very interesting work. Um, we'll see. You know, I'm sorry. It was a group from uh, Finland or Finland. Finland. Yeah, Finland. Yeah. Um, very interesting results. Um, this group had previously reported that uh, antidepressant drugs like uh, Prozac or fluoxetine also can uh, activate this receptor. Um, I would say the, the you know, which is interesting, yeah, uh, yeah. If, if true. Uh, of course, Prozac doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, ameliorate depression in a single dose, right? So, and doesn't, doesn't appear to have as robust effects as psilocybin. So um, it's sort of hard to square that with, with the idea that they both interact with the same site. Um, and to my knowledge, no one has ever, has independently replicated those findings yet. So my lab, we're trying to replicate them now. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll let people know in the next few months if we can if we can replicate them but very interesting you know pretty interesting if it's if it's true um it's a really really important finding uh from both a positive and a negative perspective okay the positive perspective is that here's a site for antidepressants which is completely distinct from the psychedelic mm -hmm. drug site and if that's true then we can we can easily make drugs that target that site um, and they, by definition, they would not be psychedelic because they're not binding to the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, the, the downside is that, uh, track B is found in every cell in the brain, hmm. uh, including, uh, both neurons and glia. And, um, there were previous, uh, trials with, uh, with brain-derived neurotrophic factor as a therapeutic agent, which failed because of very severe side effects. So I'm guessing that we don't want to activate track B in every single cell in the brain. Probably not a good idea. Um, it, and uh, we know if we activate track B outside the brain, then uh, this is associated with uh, increased risk of cancer so um, the track B receptor is an important site for uh, potential uh, carcinogenesis, both inside the brain and outside. So uh, if psychedelic drugs are having some off-target action at the track B receptor, that actually could be a bad thing long-term for psychedelics. Um, I would say arguing against all of this is the fact that you know, people, humans have taken psychedelics uh, since the 50s. There have been no reports of, you know, tumors. <laughs> we, we would have seen this in the epidemiologic right. literature by now. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's, that's a, a particular concern, but it will, you know, it'll just be, it's like, you know, it's, a, it's one of these very interesting novel innovative findings. Um, and we just need to see how, 
how reproducible this is um, yet. But very, I, I found the paper amazing. Uh, pretty, pretty cool paper. Uh, and I, I sent it around to everybody in my lab and I said, we need to start studying mm -hmm. this today. I put three people on the project. So it's, it's pretty exciting, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I've been, I've been burned before in this area. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the beauty of, of investigating it and understanding it. And I think it speaks to the heart of so many people have had a, a transformative experience under psychedelics that was at times confrontational. And people believe that it's that confrontation or that transformative nature of confronting something that helps them overcome obstacles. And I think that when you read this paper coming out of Finland, it's trying to in some ways say, hey, let's take the, the magic out of the magic mushroom. Let's take the trip out of it. Like, I think that that's what people are kind of fighting against. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people are trying to do that. So um, we have a big project that uh, is funded by DARPA, mm -hmm. uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, to see if we can create drugs that are not psychedelic, but still activate the 5-HT2A receptor and have therapeutic uh, benefits. Why do they want to do that? I don't understand. Like, why? Uh, I think, well, the reason is basic. I would say the reason is basically um, psychedelic drugs are not for, first of all, they're not for everybody. True. Um, and you wouldn't want to give them to somebody in a battlefield situation. I think that would be like the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken, right? <laughs> Giving psychedelics to people with guns is probably the world's worst idea. Um, <laughs> the the other thing is that um, uh, many many people uh, probably should not take psychedelic drugs uh, because they may have a history of uh, they they may have a history or their family may have a history of severe psychiatric illness sure. like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and certainly if that's in your history or if that's in your family history you don't want to take psychedelics because of the risks that that those could uh induce a, a basically a psychotic state or um tip someone over into schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um there's a interesting first person account i just read i think was on on stat or one of those sites or wired, maybe it was on wired um, mm. or somebody took uh, psilocybin and had a, had a manic episode and basically was ill for the next two years with, with uh, bipolar disorder. Wow. So it, it really, it really occurs. Um, and, and as well, there are, uh, you know, a vast number of people who don't want to take, who don't want to take a psychedelic. Hmm. So when I was uh, practicing psychiatry, uh, which I, I don't see patients anymore, um, many of my patients who suffered from depression uh, basically were, they would come to me and they would say, just give me a pill to make me better doc, basically. So they, didn't, they did not want to engage right. in psychotherapy right, or, right. or anything like that and certainly did not want to have a guided mushroom trip. 
Um, and finally, uh, with, uh, with psychedelic uh, therapy, there is, there is now the requirement to have uh, qualified individuals there basically before, during, and after the trip. Um, and we'll never have enough qualified hmm. guides to treat the billion or so humans that are at risk for severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and, and so on. And so um, we really need, you know, it's, it's really important to see if we can harness the power of these medications without the psychedelic effects, just because there are so many humans, so many people that suffer from these severe disabling disorders that they'll, they're never going to be eligible or they'll never have the resources for a guided psychedelic experience. Um, in the state of Oregon, I think it's $2,800 for a, a guided experience, mm. which you know, if you live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or in, um, I don't know, Pebble Beach or something like that, or Mission Bay in San Francisco, uh, $2,800 is not a lot of money. Uh, if you're out here in rural Oregon, $2,800 is a lot of money. Yeah, for uh, a lot of it's people. A lot, it's a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, so there, there is this other need, basically. <laughs> Like it every, seems everybody yeah, it, it's, yeah, it seems to me that the millions of people that are depressed and facing these this overwhelming trauma are a direct reflection of the people in charge. Like maybe the people in charge took the mushrooms, they could have an effect and then they could change the society we live in, right? <laughs> maybe the yeah, Dharma team think, should be doing the mushrooms. Yeah. I think you should probably talk to Rick Doblin. So that's his vision. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's so. I, if I shift gears here for a minute, I was talking with a friend of mine, uh, Yahim Fieber, and he's got a company called April Nineteenth, and they use AI to to create some new drug design. And he had a question that he wanted me to ask you. And the question is, which other receptors like GPCRs besides five H two A seem to contribute to the effects of psychedelics the most? Uh, there aren't any. Um, so we actually, there are drugs that are on the black market mm. that are pretty selective for 5-HT2. So in the 5-HT2 family, there are three receptors, 2A, 2B, and 2C. Okay. Um, the 2B is found in the heart. Mm. and uh, drugs that activate it can cause valvular heart disease, which is a serious concern with psychedelics, which we can get to later. Um, and the mm. 2C has nothing to do with psychedelic drug action. It regulates feeding and, and things like that. Um, and these drugs are psychedelic. Uh, they're you know virtually indistinguishable from LSD uh, when people take them. Um, so... The only, the only thing I can say is that there are some other receptors that sort of negatively impact the mm. psychedelic experience. So uh, drugs like um, 5-methoxytryptamine, uh, this, is the, uh, this is the drug that's found in toad skin. 5-MeO. Uh, uh, this apparently causes uh, amnesia for the psychedelic experience or 
at least partial amnesia. And we think that's due to its act activity at 5-HT1A receptors, but mm. I would say that's by no means uh, definitive. Um, so there, there are certainly other sites that these drugs hit that, that can attenuate the psychedelic experience. Um, but I'm, I don't think there's any good data that, that interaction with any of these other receptors promotes the psychedelic experience. Um, so it appears to be just 5-HT2A. And uh, sort of related to this, there's a paper that was just published where people were given either LSD or psilocybin in a blinded fashion mm -hmm. and on two different occasions. And uh, they were asked to distinguish, you know, which one was LSD and which one was psilocybin. They couldn't tell the difference, basically. So the effects were provided you give a sufficient dose, the effects are basically identical uh, with, the, with the caveat that the effects of LSD last longer than the effects right. of psilocybin but they're, they're virtually identical. DMT is, is sort of a different, different story. So if you read the first person accounts, um, people have, you know, lots of people uh, experience these uh, spirits or entities or uh, multidimensional machine L, somebody calls mm. them under, <laughs> under DMT. That, that appears to be somewhat unique to that. Um, it, it could be just a pharmacokinetic thing because DMT gets into the brain really quickly and activates the receptors almost instantaneously. Um, we know from our work in mice that 5-HT2A uh, blockers block all the effects of DMT. Um, there have not been those studies in humans, so we probably should wait until we have the human studies, but there's, there's really no, no good evidence that at least in terms of the psychedelic action, that this is mediated by anything other than the 5-HT2A receptor. Here's another one for you. There is a hypothesis that a metabolite of LSD, hydroxy-LSD, binds strongly to dopamine D2 receptors, which contributes to some negative effects of LSD. Have you found any evidence for this in your assays? So we actually, so LSD binds strongly to D2 receptors. So it's a really potent D2 agonist. Um, and uh, it binds so tightly that we were able to solve, we recently were able to solve a structure of the D2 receptor with LSD mm. bound to it. So we haven't published it yet, but we have the structure. Nice. Um, so I haven't looked at hydroxy LSD's pharmacology. Be interesting to look at that. Um, but both actually both LSD and psilocybin activate D2 receptors pretty potently. Um, LSD a little bit better than, than psilocybin. So it's, it's hard for me to believe that that might be the case, but I mean, you never know until it's been studied in some detail. Do you like there is some I was reading some theories about um, and this was just in a magazine. I, I can't cite the paper. It's more anecdotal than anything. But there's been some research in some in some papers or magazines that I was reading where people are using like a nasal 5-MeO to help with dementia. Do you think in the future that there's potential for for classic psychedelics to be used in aiding neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, there. Well, we don't know. Um, right. 
until we have clinical trials, but, or even, there aren't even animal studies yet <laughs> suggesting the effect. Right. Um, and I, and uh, I can just say two things about that. The first sure. is that uh, we know that psychedelic drugs induce plasticity mm -hmm. in the brain, uh, but this is a characteristic of all psychoactive drugs. So every psychoactive drug induces plasticity in some neural circuit to some extent or another. Um, and psychedelics are, are no different or do, are not distinguished in that way from, from other, other drugs. Um, but they do, the one thing that's, that's sort of a little unusual about the psychedelic induced plasticity is it occurs very quickly after psychedelic drug administration and is fairly long lasting. Um, and uh, the same sort of plasticity that occurs uh, with psychedelic drugs also occurs with uh, antidepressants uh, and drugs like ketamine, which are used to treat depression. And so we think that this plasticity may be important for the, for the potentially the therapeutic effects. Um, and the question is, if you look at a, at a, at a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease or, mm -hmm. you know, Neiman pick dementia, frontotemporal dementia, I mean, there are a ton of these diseases. If you enhance plasticity, is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Um, and it's an interesting idea. We just don't know. Um, I, I'm guessing not. That's my, that's my prediction. I'm guessing we're not going to use 5-methoxy DMT to treat dementia. Um, you know, just clinically, the last thing in the world you would want to do is give a psychedelic to somebody who's demented. Um, it would be a really bad, it's a really bad idea. Um, maybe 5-methoxy DMT. You know, for anybody who's contemplating 5-methoxy DMT for dementia, what I recommend is you go to a uh, this uh, TV series, um, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. Mm. Are you are you aware of this? I am. Yeah. Okay. So he has a whole episode on 5-methoxy DMT, and uh, you can in this episode you can watch him and his friend take 5-methoxy DMT. And it is the most terrifying thing in the world I've ever seen. His friend basically is completely dissociated, rolling around on the ground, frothing at the mouth. And they were at the stream and they had to basically roll him out of the stream before he drowned. So it's, and Hamilton Morris is just completely out of it, basically, when he takes it. <laughs> so it's, it's not like a benign drug. <laughs> it looks pretty scary. <laughs> and uh, I've talked to people who've taken 5-methoxy DMT. And this one guy basically said he thought he was dying, you know, I mean, physically. He, it was very, very, a very, very frightening experience. It's an extremely intense experience. So I... I think the people that are studying this should talk to someone who's actually taken the drug. Um, then they may see how foolish this idea is. Um, I think it's a very foolish idea. Uh, that being, you know, that being said, I have heard from my basic science colleagues 
that they're now seeing with some psychedelic drugs in mice models, some evidence of um, sort of, I would say, beneficial plasticity in, mm. in diseases in which there is diminished plasticity. Okay. So there might be something there, but I think for dementia, we need, you know, with, with dementia, by the time people are demented, they've lost a significant number of neurons in the brain. Mm. Psychedelic drugs do not increase neurogenesis or the, you know, they do not enhance the number of new neurons that are being made, basically. So they're not going to grow you a new set of neurons. They may make the neurons that are there have more branches, whether, you know, whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing in, in a demented brain is, is, is hard to say. Um, but it might be for things like uh, hearing loss or, or tinnitus or something like that. Um, I would say mild hearing loss, um, maybe COVID, you know, people that are losing mm. their, their taste, uh, the sense of taste and smell with COVID might be, you know, maybe there, I haven't heard anything yet, but that might be something you would think about, but dementia would not be the, that would not be the thing I would go after. Um, I can give you a little more context on this. Sure. Sure. Um, so for a number of years, I was an editor for the Journal of Clinical Investigation, which which is, you know, arguably the the largest journal for sort of preclinical research. And I handled all the papers that were in the area of neurosciences. And at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, I would get a paper for a new drug that cured Alzheimer's disease in mice. Mm. Okay. <laughs> So in my five-year period, I saw maybe 500 papers that would cure everyone different, okay? So um, I, I'm very skeptical about these sorts of things. There are tons and tons of interventions that will, you know, ameliorate uh, Alzheimer's disease or cognitive deficits in mice. None of, none of them work in humans, basically. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll just have to see. But I, I'm, for that... For that particular application, I'm a bit skeptical. There, there are plenty of other good applications. <laughs> Have you seen any studies? Like, I, it brings to me the idea that I wonder what happens in the brain at a near-death experience because there's no shortage of people who've had this near-death experience and come out a changed person. Yeah. So I had one. Oh, um, well, do tell, my friend, if you don't it mind. Did not, it did not change me. <laughs> Not, it had to change you a little bit, at least a little bit. I don't think so. You, I'll just tell you, what, okay. tell you what it was. <laughs> so I was out. Uh, I have a, my brother is a trauma surgeon okay. and also is a, uh, is in the active reserve of the army. And uh, in his army career, he went through sort of ranger training. And uh, one night uh, when we were vacationing in Montana, he, he convinced me that the thing I should do was to do a midnight dive with him with, uh, with uh, scuba gear uh, in this lake in Montana. And I did that and I ran out of air and it was dark and he didn't see that I was out of air. Mm. And uh, I kept going up to the surface to get air and he kept pulling me down basically because <laughs> he thought, he thought my ballasts were not working right. <laughs> and he drowned me basically. <laughs> And uh, 
just before, so I'd basically given up. And the only, the only thought that came to mind was my wife is going to be really pissed at me because she told me not to take that midnight, midnight <laughs> dive. Because <laughs> we were like 100 yards from, from the shore. And as I came up, I could see them there. Right. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, she's going to be really pissed. I, there wasn't any, um, my mind was very clear, um, very calm. There was no fear. Uh, it was just, this is a really stupid thing to do. I'm going to die out here and, and my wife is going to be really pissed. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it ends, I guess, right? <laughs> who thought, who knew? <laughs> but it sadly did not change me. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. But other, other people report different things. You know, I didn't see any, didn't see any tunnel of light. I was certain, you know, I was certain I was dead basically. I didn't see any tunnel of light or anything like that. It was just sort of clear, clear awareness. Um, I practiced Zen. Okay. And it's, it sort of was a, like a Samadhi experience, basically. Every, my mind was completely clear. You know, everything was bright. And, but uh, that was it. So, okay. Like trying to drink the ocean through a fork. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there is, there is, there is actually a Zen koan. Swallow the swallow the ocean in a single gulp. Mm. (laughs) Which your brother wanted you to do. I was doing that. (laughs) (laughs) If what, let's say that there was a study in psychedelics that won the Nobel prize. What would that be? Do you think, what, is there a study that could oh, win the Nobel yeah. prize? Oh yeah, I think, yeah. The, if they give a Nobel prize for psychedelics, they should probably give it to Roland Griffiths and the group at NYU uh, because they discovered the therapeutic effects. Um, they published this, these back-to-back papers in 2016 um, and that basically started the entire psychedelic renaissance. So before then, there was, you know, no interest, literally no interest in psychedelic drugs therapeutically. And that, that really opened the, opened the floodgates. Um, one could also make the, make the argument that uh, the MAPS, this Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that have brought forth MDMA, again, I... I was extremely skeptical that MDMA would be effective for anything. But if you look at the clinical trial data, Mm -hmm. the results are astounding. Yeah. Uh, I have, you know, I treated many people with PTSD when I was a a resident, a psychiatry resident at Stanford. And uh, there's nothing we could do for them. They were, you know, they had, they had, these are mainly Vietnam veterans experience right. the most horrific things. That, I mean, you cannot imagine what they experience, what they've experienced. And uh, in many cases, through no fault of their own, they were just passive bystanders, you know, and something blew up and their friend was completely obliterated, basically. Mm. Um, and it was clear to me that I, we didn't have anything to offer them. The, the best we could help them with was we could give them uh, certain types of antidepressants, which would suppress their ability to have dreams. So they wouldn't dream at night, basically. That, 
But that, that was basically it. And then I saw the, you know, the results, the phase three trial results with ecstasy published in Nature Medicine, I think, uh, three years ago. Amazing. Unbelievable, basically. Yeah. And um, I subsequently heard from many veterans who contacted me uh, by email uh, and elsewhere that um, these medications, these drugs are extremely effective for treating PTSD in, in the right in the right setting. Um, so I think MAPS gets gets a huge um, a huge slice of that as well. Um, those would be my if I if Nobel uh, committee asked me to nominate somebody, those those would be the people I would I would nominate. Um, yeah, I mean it's we would not be where we are today if it wasn't for those those three organizations. Yeah. When you see the research like that on MDMA and what it's done for people, doesn't it make you curious to want to try it? Yeah, I, I, I thought about it. Um, it's illegal, right? Uh, In some places. Yeah. I'm sure we could find a location it's not, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I was curious about is what a rave, what an authentic rave experience would be like. So I've talked to lots and lots of uh, people in the rave culture mm -hmm. and they describe really a really, you know, intensely ecstatic and spiritual experience. Uh, and I thought that might be interesting to, to try, um, you know, if it, it basically, if it was legal um, and if my physician said it would be safe for me to take <laughs> there Ecstasy is not without its side effects. So, sure. Um, you know, hyper, uh, what's called hyperpyrexia, which is, uh, uh, you know, increased temperature, um, fainting, uh, and, and so on. You know, it's, it's rare, but, uh, there are, there are people that die from ecstasy. Sure. Um, if they're not in a, in a, in a coolish, a coolish environment, basically. So yeah, so that's that's the only that's the only one that sort of piqued my curiosity. Not not enough to really try it, but it's it's intriguing to me. I don't, you know, I don't. Luckily, I don't have any any post traumatic stress disorder uh, symptoms of any sort. Um, I think it would have been it would have been useful for me when I was a trainee, a medicine trainee. Uh, in that era, we had. Yeah. It was in the era before um, before cell phones, and we had beepers, basically pagers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when we were on call, the pager would go off, right? And immediately, my heart would start racing. I would get <laughs> so I, I sort of had like mild PTSD for the sound of beepers, pagers. <laughs> <laughs> so it might have been useful back then, but I don't have anything that would be you know that would make it necessary for me to take uh ecstasy how about yourself have you ever thought about taking ecstasy you have i've taken a i've taken a bunch of it i've i've, okay. I've been pretty well versed with psychedelics i've taken mushrooms lsd a bunch of the analogs like flad ecstasy i've tried a host of recreational drugs and i've 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 found that they have been really phenomenal in helping me work through my trauma. Obviously I've used them in a recreational form, but right. as I've gotten older, like I've really used, I'll give you an example. 
uh, I've been a UPS driver. I was a UPS driver for 26 years. And in there, you know, I've, I've, I found myself at a state after my son died where I was really angry for a while. And I was really, there was a guy at my work and I was really mean to him all the time. But I mm-hmm. thought I was just joking with him. I, I would say things ah. like, oh, you're a big baby or, you know, you're really weak. But I would say mean things to him. That's pretty my, mean. <laughs> it's re- I, and it was way worse than that. But, and, but here I am, my ego in check, trying to be all cool guy. Right. You know, and my friend pulls me aside and he goes, George, you're being a real dick to that guy. And I was like, you think so? And he's like, yeah, that's why I'm telling you, man. And I remember I, I, that weekend I did a big dose of mushrooms and I thought to myself, like, why am I being so mean to that guy? Uh, uh-huh. And it, it hit me in, a, in like a one-two punch. The first punch was, you don't like him because he's weak. And the second punch instantly is like, no, you're weak. And he uh, reminds you you're weak. Uh, and I went, oh, geez, I get goosebumps when I think about it. You know, and I was like, oh, my God. And then, of course, I had to go apologize to him and be like, oh, you know, I just want to do a apologize i've been really mean and disrespectful to you and i hope you'll accept my apology you're a great person i'm really weak and i'm working on some things and i want to thank you because you showed me that i'm weak man and i wow. i'm sorry wow. you know but i would have never had i may not have had that insight for a long time or ever had i not been in a heightened state of awareness or in a state which that could have what, what i could have thought i saw myself in almost a third person point of view and that that seems to be something that is pointed out in different types of PTSD treatments when I read about other people, when I talk about people that go and, and have these experiences. That seems to be something that's repeated, maybe not in that exact form, but they're seeing themselves in a third-person point of view. On the topic of um, yeah, I believe, ecstasy, yeah, I believe it seems to be uh, have a specific, uh, specific activity for that. Uh, at least yeah. from, my, from what I've read, uh, there are there are reports of people basically experiencing what they did to other people. Yeah, from that from the other person's perspective. Yes, basically, and that, as you imagine, that is extremely powerful, right? Extremely powerful. Yeah. Well, think about that from a doctor's point of view. Like, if you have that experience, then I think you'll be able to better not only diagnose the person that may have something, but you'll have a a a real empathy with that person. I think that it enhances your relationship with the patient in a weird sort of way. Yeah, it may. Uh, And you know, everything you say is is very intriguing and consistent with what many many people have told me, basically. Um, and so I don't, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear that in the, in the right circumstances, sure. uh, these drugs can be, you know, quite useful. I, I like to call them medications now rather than drugs Agreed. because Agreed. they're, they're under, you know, they're under investigation by the FDA as medication. Sure. Um, and I think the, the challenge going forward will be fine, you know, to find the right patient cohorts for them the right therapists, mm-hmm. uh, and the right indications. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is what I hear. Uh, it's particularly powerful talking to veterans who yeah. have, um, you know, gone on ayahuasca journeys or mm-hmm. ibogaine journeys. Um, they have very powerful experiences as well. Very, you know, in some, in some ways, very similar and end up with, you know, 
an acceptance uh, and a lightening of, of that load. Uh, <clears throat> for myself, um, since we're into anecdotes, yeah, uh, <laughs> I practice Zen. Right. <laughs> okay. And uh, for a number of years, uh, well, for decades, basically, I had uh, some issues with uh, with my father. You know, typical. Mm. I hear I you. Say more, more extreme than sort of typical. Um, I, I was in psychoanalysis as part of my training. Uh, you know, to deal with this, um, and. The amazing, so I, I, I go to these Zen retreats several times a year. And I remember after a particular Zen retreat, I came out of the retreat, basically. Uh, and the anger was gone. It had totally disappeared, completely gone. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I basically called up my, my parents uh, in the next few days and expressed my gratitude to them. Yeah. For... For their help, right. basically. Nice. They thought, they thought I had gone crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the, the thing that's interesting to me is that during that retreat, and actually during all my Zen retreats, my father has never come, never came up for me. Okay. So it wasn't like I dealt, it wasn't like I had a hallucination of my father uh, during the retreat. It's just that it just fell away, basically. Um, so I think what this indicates to me is that there there are other other there may be other approaches, yeah, uh, which do not rely on this um, basically the psychedelicized experience that um, that might be the might be the same. The, the downside with, with Zen is it takes about 30 years of, of training. So it, it takes, a lo takes a long time. It's not particularly user-friendly. Um. <laughs> yeah. Any, yeah. Any heightened state of awareness, right? Like any time you're able to find yourself in a different state of awareness, you can see yourself in the situation, in the world around you differently. It's a yeah. shifting of perspective. And I think the psychedelics, they rocket you to that. If you don't understand, it's a, if you're getting rocketed to this new space, it could be scary. But it's like any environment you're in, whether you're at a Zen retreat on day five, it may take, it may take 25 years for you to get comfortable in the environment before you can explore it. The same goes with a psychedelic substance. You may have to go on a few journeys before you become comfortable with the environment. And you can begin picking things up and being, oh, well, that's my relationship. Or, hey, that's yeah. me being a knucklehead, you know? Or, yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, uh, getting getting back to this, I, yeah. I recently uh, was at a scientific meeting, and one of my colleagues um, who suffers from severe depression uh, had he came to he came to me and he looked different. Nice. And uh, <clears throat> he's somebody my age, basically, and he said. He went on a guided psilocybin experience and he said it was amazingly effective, basically. Um, he, this was a guy I never, no way I would ever right. have, have, have. So he went to a, a you know, a, ther a regular therapist and um, 
it was it was in a place that it's legal basically um but interestingly he said that the integration is the most difficult for him the integration after the experience has been has been the most powerful how does he uh, define integration like what does that what does that mean i didn't get into that with him mm, right uh, you know, we didn't, I didn't discuss what his issues were. I was just happy to see that he had a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye. You know? Yeah, he looked different, you said. That's he looked, great. That's... He, looked, he looked different. There was no question. I could see it. Immediately. Yeah. You could see it. Tangible. Yeah, yeah there was no question. Yeah. yeah. This is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to say it. I think if you did a large dose of psilocybin, the direction of your research would change dramatically. I've been studying psychedelics since 1983. I know, I know, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I'm just saying I think it would. Sh I know it, and I please forgive me for saying something like that. But I, I have to say it. Like I think it would fundamentally change. So you don't perception. know anything. You don't. I don't know don't, crap, man. You don't know I mean, anything about my past. Let me just put it that way. Okay, I don't. And, and I, I mean, no disrespect there, but I, I yeah, maybe you can share some with me. I, I'm not going to get into anything in my past. Um, but let, let me, you know, let me just say that, that my interests always have been how, how drugs are acting at the most fundamental level. And uh, I've always wanted to study psychedelics, basically. Yeah. I'll just put it there, put it, right. put it out there like that. Right. Um, and, you know, we all have our own um, interests, Absolutely. You know, every mind is different. We all have Absolutely. our own interests and our own uh, opportunities and uh, potentialities. And the, the way my mind works, the research that I do is the best thing for me to do. I'll just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm stoked you do it. I, it's fascinating. <laughs> and no one else is doing it, basically. Yeah. So for years, um, I had the only grant to study LSD. Literally the only NIH grant to study LSD up until about three or four years ago. Um, so I was the only person, uh, almost the only person in the world that was studying these drugs at the at a fundamental level. And we don't we we don't know anything about how these drugs act in the brain. Mm. And uh, that's that's what I'm really you know I think that's where I can make the biggest impact. There are tons and tons of psychologists and therapists that are looking at the sort of transpersonal and transformative aspects of these. And that's fine. Right. That's, they can, they can do that. Um, I'm best at that sort of more basic research and that's, that's where I should be basically. That, so that brings up once, once something like once something attaches to the two A receptor, is it, just a level of cascading events after that? Is that when the incoherence comes in? Like, do, do we know what happens after that or like, so we don't, we don't really know. That's one of the big things we're trying to find out. I can tell you what we think. I can tell you what my current okay. understanding is. Okay. Please. Um, so the 5-HT2A receptors are found in the cortex. Um, so who is okay. the audience for this? Let me just, so I know how to, how to explain things. It's, it's a wide range of, um, I have a lot of people on LinkedIn that are doctors and psychologists, but then there's also a lot of 
recreational uh, users like me or people that enjoy okay. listening to psychology. So you have a, a wide swath. So okay. I, I would bring it down to okay, about I'll a bring, level five. I'll bring it down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in the in the cortex, that's the part of the brain that that we think with and and gives us a perspective of reality. Um, that's where these receptors are the most highly enriched. And when LSD binds these receptors, it causes the neurons to fire in a very disorganized fashion. Okay. So it basically injects noise in the system. So what you have is that the, the part of the brain that's most critically involved in giving us our view of reality, there's now noise like this in it. Okay. And, and we think that is what caused, you know, our best guess is that that is what causes the psychedelic experience. Um, they're no longer, the, the mind can no longer trust the internal, the external cues. And so now, it, now it, it turns its, its awareness into experiences that are derived internally from the cortex. Okay. And what you see concomitantly is that uh, in the visual cortex, so the area of the brain that's responsible for seeing the world, mm -hmm. that gets shut down to some extent because people are now um, basically focusing on internally derived um, visual stimuli, okay, swirl, whirls, and things like this. Um, and and then the mind begins to create a narrative. Mm. And the narrative, uh, for reasons that are not understood at all, uh, well, we don't know why it creates a narrative, but it does. Talk to anybody who takes a psychedelic. There's a narrative, right? Right. There's a story, a story. Um, that is imparted with tremendous meaning and significance, mm. okay? Right. And right. that's very peculiar for psychedelics. So marijuana, uh, people who smoke marijuana, they they don't say I, I smoked this joint and I had this transformative experience. <laughs> they, they don't say they don't it. Say it. I know. <laughs> they don't say that. People who take crack cocaine don't say that. Nope. Uh, people who drink alcohol don't say that. Uh, but people that take psychedelics say that. So that's very, very interesting to me that, and it's due to the drug, right? Because you didn't have that experience before you took the drug. You only had the experience when you took the drug. So the drug is doing something in the brain that's, uh, you know, creating this narrative and giving it tremendous significance and also relevance for your life. Yeah. Okay? So we, we don't have the foggiest idea what's going on. And, and I, and so I get at this meeting, I gave a talk. I was the keynote speaker. I gave a talk on psychedelics and my, and, and I said, as part of my talk, I said, we don't have any idea what's going on here. And my friend who had taken psilocybin said, you're right. We don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we, don't, we don't have the foggiest idea what the heck is going on. And I think it would be useful to understand that, right? Yeah. If these, if these, if these medications are going to be approved and used by, you know, millions and potentially billions of people, it would be 
quite useful to understand how they work in the brain, right? So that's what I'm focused on. Do you have any, like, um, I know doctors and scientists aren't supposed to speculate. Do you have any ideas of what you think may be happening? No, I don't. I don't I'm, you don't, uh, I'm quite perplexed. <laughs> and uh, I, I, so the technical term for meaning is what's called salience. So there's this term called salience. Okay. Um, and so psychedelic experiences are, are filled with salience. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I talk to the people that study salience, they tell me I need to study the locus ceruleus and norepinephrine neurons. And I say to them, well, psychedelics don't affect the locus ceruleus or norepinephrine neurons. And they said, well, it can't be salience. Then I said, well, it is. There's no question. So, so this, it's, 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 it's a completely different sort of uncharted territory. We don't, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons I find it really, really interesting yeah. because, you know, it's sort of like uh, if you go back to the 1800s when explorers were, you know, exploring the Amazon and everywhere they looked, there was a new species of bird or a new species of insect that they could name. That's sort of where we are in terms of psychedelics. We're, we're in the dark ages in terms of understanding them. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just a really exciting time so. see it seems to me on some level like it's 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 i i think that 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 idea of meaning stems from language like it seems to me the reason why you have such a powerful experience and it's a connection and meaningful to you as an individual on psychedelics is because for the first time in 50 or 40 or 30 years you have the ability to reimagine everything. And if you just think about the way we're taught, like the phonetic alphabet in the world, the way we process information, you see something and all of a sudden you're given the title of that. That's a bird. I'll give you an example. Like let's say you're a baby, you're two years old and a bird flies into your room. And as a child, you're like, look at this magical flying beast flapping its wings. And your mom comes in and says, George, that's a bird. That's a bird, George. Okay, that's just taken everything away from me and it's given me bird. That process has gone on for 50 years. And when you take a psychedelic, that phonetic alphabet, the, the, the separation, the, the idea of exact repeatability is gone. And now you as an individual for the first time in 50 years are seeing something and giving it the meaning that you want to it. Like that is an experience of a godlike experience, right? Yeah. Not too crazy? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's, Many people have this, these experiences uh, where they're an omniscient experience or where, where they are the universe, right? Right, yes. Where there's no, no separation between them and the universe. When they breathe in, the universe breathes in. When yes. they breathe out, the universe breathes out. Um, I have the same experience when I practice Zen. I'm just not having a psychedelic experience. So um, I... I completely get what, what you're talking about. And it's, it's, it's marvelous, right? Yes. It's a mar it's a more than that. It's a marvelous, wonderful experience to hear a bird for the first time, to really hear a bird, to hear just the, just the sound of the bird, right? Just the bird or just see the bird uh, yeah. where, where you and the bird are one with the universe. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's transformative. Um, how could you ever hurt a bird after that, right? 
Yeah. Right. How could you ever, how could you ever squash an insect after you've had that experience? Um, so I, I'm with you. Um, the, the thing I'm a little cautious about though, is that I grew up sort of the tail end of the sixties mm. and many, many people I knew took psychedelics. Vir virtually everybody I knew took psychedelics at right. one time or another. Um, and had, you know, peak psychedelic experiences. There was tons of LSD around. It was reasonably pure. Um, Many of these people are now Trump supporters. <laughs> I grew up, Don't eat the brown acid. I grew up in right. Montana. I grew up in a small okay. town in okay. Montana. Okay. <laughs> okay. LSD made it to Montana. Right. Uh, and uh, I was on Facebook recently. And a lot of these old hippies are now huge Trump supporters. It's it's like the most and you know anti anti gay, you know. So it's, you know, if you would have talked to them in the '60s or '70s, they were very liberal, open minded people. But it didn't last forever. Okay, it it lasted you know, probably for a year or so, and then at most, and then they were basically who they were. So the, that, that's, you see, you see these things, a lot of people report these things. Um, you know, so many people took LSD in the 60s that we should now have an enlightened society, right? Right? All those boomers, I don't, I don't know. All I, those I, boomers, all those boomers took LSD. There were tons of them. Maybe a million boomers took LSD. Um, boomers are the biggest yeah. supporters now. So th this is this is the pushback I give people that if you look okay. look at long term, okay, unless you know maybe people need to take a booster once a year. Um, I, I I I think I it needs to be a relationship for life with it. Yeah. So, but a single dose or a few doses just doesn't lead to any, any long-term transformation. Um, I, I can sort of give you two anecdotes about that. Sure. Uh, that you might find interesting. Of course. Uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, uh, they warn, they warn about this basically that, you know, early, early in the program, you're going to see big changes. Um, but they say it's it's a lifetime journey, and one of the one of the ways they say that is uh, is a jerk or an asshole. Basically, an asshole gets on the plane in Chicago, and an asshole gets off the plane in Detroit. Right? Okay. So you can have this wonderful experience. You're still basically the same. You may still be the same person, and you need to guard against that. Um. Uh, the other thing was, oh, oh, so Mountain Girl. You've heard of Mountain Girl, right? It sounds familiar, but maybe I can't, I can't quite think what it is. Maybe you could flesh it out for me. I think that was Jerry Garcia's second wife. Okay. And she was also a, a, one of the first uh, Merry Pranksters with Ken okay. Kesey. Okay. Right. Cuckoo's Nest. So, one floor of Cuckoo's yeah. Nest. so she lives in Oregon. 
She lives in outside Eugene. I just read a, she's pretty famous in the psychedelic community. Very famous in the great, uh, I'm a Grateful Dead fan. So all us Grateful nice. Dead fans know who Mountain Girl is. Um, she said she takes psilocybin once a year. And uh, this guy who wrote the, which I'm not recommending this. I'm just, mm -hmm, right. you know, just, just telling a story. That's, that's what she says. She takes it once a year to reconnect, basically reorient. Uh, and this guy, Tom Robbins, uh, this famous author who right. wrote uh, all these marvelous books. Uh, uh, Another Roadside Attraction, I think, was one of his, his big books. He, he, live, or he lives or lived in, in the Northwest and took mushrooms once a year, basically. Um, so I, my guess is for, um, for really, you know, long-term transformation, probably you need to be in psychotherapy, practice Zen, group therapy, you know, I'm not going to recommend taking psychedelics regularly because we just we just don't know what the right. what the ramifications are that are for that. Um, but but that's that's my pushback is that the enduring the enduring effects on on personality don't appear to be that enduring for the vast majority of people. This was noticed in the 60s when they did uh, studies on LSD and psilocybin. Um, uh, people who are alcoholic initially would have a period of abstinence. And then mm -hmm. unless they were in a 12 step program, basically would start drinking again. So there needs to be something, I think for most people, there would need to be something added to that. I don't think it's going to be like, take, take five grams of mushrooms, call me in the morning and all your problems will be gone forever. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. From what I have read about some of the, the beneficial effects and that I have experienced is that it seems to me psychedelics help you confront an issue where in the world of addiction, people are running from an issue. People take people will drink alcohol to get away or not think about their problems. They'll do cocaine to get away from these things. But it seems in a psychedelic experience, there's nowhere to run that the problem is in front of you, but not so much in a way where you can't deal with it. It's in a manner that's like, what if I did this or I'm kind of being a knucklehead, you know, and it's, it's almost like a, a, a friendly exchange between a different version of yourself and the truth. If, if that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's dependent on the person, right? Good point. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, people with uh, that are insufficiently integrated, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they have a severe personality disorder, borderline sure. personality disorder. Um, it would be pretty problematic for them to have that experience. Um, and one can imagine, you know, well, I've met people who have yeah, quote unquote bad trips. Um, and I think that's why all the, all the regulatory agencies, so the FDA basically recently issued a guidance on psilocybin and mm -hmm. other psychedelics. And they, they rec, you know, it, part of the, part of the, uh, part of the FDA recommendations is there need to be guides. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, it, everything you say is, is certainly consistent with, with things I've heard from many, many other people, but I would caution 
listeners here not to do this on your own. Um, ideally, uh, if you can make it out to Oregon, you know, make it out to, sure. you know, make it out to a, a licensed practitioner, a licensed therapist, uh, somebody who's gone through the training uh, and uh, has experience. You know, don't, don't in, you know, if you're a teenager, don't uh, have two of your friends sit with you. Probably, probably not a good idea. Um, yeah, uh, you know, certainly everything you say is possible. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, I, I, sometimes like when I read some of the literature about people finding novel ways to solve problems or having that aha moment that we talked about, sometimes they find themselves out in nature and they, they're studying things. And there's a weird similarity that I think a lot of people have noticed that if you look at certain types of mycelium, which is like the fungal growth of the mushrooms, and you can see how they move through the root structures of trees they're providing nutrients to different parts of the root structures. And it seems that that is what happens in the, the synaptic activity of our brain when, when we consume mushrooms, that it's, it's moving energy around or dendritic spines are moving back and forth and changing shape. It seems like it's, it just seems like there's a pattern there. And maybe it's because I'm seeing patterns where there aren't any patterns, but can it be as above, so below? Like, could, could we study what's happening in mushrooms below ground to see maybe what's happening in our brain when we take fungus like that? Or is that too far out there? I've heard a lot of people say these things. What I, what I reply is uh, DMT doesn't come from a mushroom. All right. Okay. LSD does not come from a mushroom. Um, and people have the same experience. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't think it's the mushroom itself. It's the drug. Mm. Um, but they, what they, and MDMA ecstasy also in, from what I've heard, uh, improves, you know, people have this sense of communion, right? Yeah. Um, MDMA is an entirely synthetic molecule. Uh, so I, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea. There are lots of mushrooms, you know, all mushrooms right. are mycelia. They don't all give us, a, you know, there's only a few that give us a psychedelic experience. A lot of them are poison. Right. Um, some, you know, cause a dissociative experience like Amanita muscarina. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting story. Uh, you know, it's helpful to people. It's fine, but I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this before. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's a story. So right. it's again one of these stories the mind makes up and, you know, the storytelling. Up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes up a story. Um, this guy uh, who who coined the term multidimensional machine elves. I, I Terrence think, McKenna. Terrence McKenna. Yeah, he has, I urge people to listen to his listen to him on YouTube. You only yeah. have to listen to a couple of his talks before you get the entire message. But he has, you know, he has this strange idea that, that mushrooms are like an alien life form and um, communicating with us. Uh, yeah, you know, anything is possible. I think they're just psychedelic mushrooms, you know? It's, right. You know. 
Yeah. I, I think it was almost hearkening back to Francis Crick's idea of panspermia. You know how like the all of a sudden there's spores that come from another planet. And I, I don't know, there's some fascinating, fun ideas to think about that could be possible, you know, and I don't know. When, here's one about an addiction that I was thinking about. It's weird how in the world of addiction, we see the treatment for that is almost to give somebody another medicine that keeps them addicted. And as a psychiatrist, it's so weird that how, how I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I'm, I would like to get your opinion on. It seems that we as humans have used that in the business world. And I'll give you the idea of like toner. Like they'll, you can buy a copier from Xerox and they'll give you the copier for almost nothing. But then you got to buy the toner. It kind of seems like they've harnessed the addictive model of drugs, you know, or is that, is that just a scaffold that we humans move towards? It's weird how that permeates both sides of us though, right? Like it's in business and it's an addiction. It's something that we do maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've heard this sort of argument before from people about all sorts of things in medicine. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, my I can only speak of my experience as a physician um, and the experience of people I know very well as physicians, our goal is to, is to help people. Yes. Um, and, uh, I also know people that work in the pharmaceutical industry and their goal is to, you know, make a medicine that makes a difference for people. That's their goal. Um, secondarily to make, to make money. Um, and with, with treating addiction, it's, it's a really, it's a really complicated thing. So you need there, there's physical addiction. Um, and frequently the best thing you can do for the patient where they are, for the individual where they are in their lives at that period of time right. is decrease their craving for the addictive substance so that they no longer engage in the, in the really uh, terrible things that they're doing to um, to themselves and to others to maintain their addiction. Um, and I don't think any, any physician that specializes in addiction disorders would say that their goal is to get them addicted to. So if they're a heroin addict, to get them addicted to methadone, that's, that's not the goal. The goal is for the goal. Our goal is to get them, get them off and have them lead a, you know, the life they want to lead. Um, but that's not possible for everybody. Uh, you know, for, for a whole host of reasons, uh, sometimes there aren't, we don't have the support systems in place. Right. Um, you know, the, we don't, we don't invest any money in community mental health or community substance mm. abuse centers. Um, and we don't see it as a priority in our country. Uh, you know, and I think what we really need is we, we as a, as a society need to have a change in our hearts inside so that, so that we can connect with people and help them, help them out. Um, and until, until we're in sort of this, what I call an alternative Canadian universe, <laughs> the orthogonal to our particular universe, right? <laughs> um, or you know, alternative uh, Netherlands universe. Mm. 
or whatever, you know, Swedish universe. Right. Um, you know, we're not going to get there. And, you know, I, I don't know of any physician that thinks, you know, it's, it's a good outcome that the person is now on bupropion, you know, mm. or, uh, or use, um, uh, buprenorphine mm. uh, versus heroin. Okay. So buprenorphine is, is now given a lot to diminish uh, cravings for, for opiates and, and right. help the recovery process. Um, mm. Nobody sees that as a final solution. It's a step. It's a step in the direction of recovery. And we just don't have, you know, blame it on your congressman. We don't have anybody that, yeah. you know, we don't have any advocates out there for uh, people with severe substance abuse and mental illnesses in this country. Um, and it would be great if we, you know, lived in a society where um, everybody could have access to an addiction network, addiction re recovery network. Um, we don't have that here. Um, and that's, that's what we need. Uh, the medications are, are effective. They're not, you know, they're not the final situation. And um, I actually don't know. I, I, I know of no physician that would say, yeah, I'm just giving this to me. I mean, there are physicians out there that have, you know, prescription pill mills in their mm. office. But uh, the vast majority of us out there, you know, we're, we're confronted with an un, literally an unending stream of human suffering every day mm -hmm. entering our doors. And what we want to do is to diminish that suffering in some way. Uh, and if it's a, if, if the only intervention we can give is a pill that we give that basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, uh, try to do our best, but it's, you know, we live in an imperfect world, sadly. And so we have to, have to just take advantage of the tools that are currently available. Um, I think in the future, psychedelic medicines may be uh, an instrument in the armamentarium. You know, certainly mm. what I hear from individuals who have taken Ibo, who've taken Ibogaine, who are heroin addicts or fentanyl addicts, um, you know, many, 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 many people find uh, after, after that the strength to to leave that all behind. Um, and it would be wonderful if we had some sort of treatments where everybody that came in the door, we could say, well, here's a prescription. I, here's, you know, Joe and Sally, they'll be your guides basically. Yeah. And they're going to take you through a guided experience. And then we have a whole program afterwards for, you know, integration and aftercare and maybe booster sessions at some time in the future. We don't have that right now. Uh, and so we, you know, we just have to do what we can with what we have. It seems like one of the biggest problems with trying to get new technologies or new drugs to market is like the clinical trial process. Uh, it, do you think that maybe in the future we'll see it, like a way to streamline that? Like James Fademan has like the Fademan protocol where he, you know, he sent, he had everybody send in, you know, I forgot the exact amount of people he had, but he sent it out to the public, kind of farmed it out a little bit. 
please send in the dosage you're taking, what you're taking it for. And he created like this large swath of almost a survey type of protocol where people sent stuff in. And I realize it's not that accurate. And there's, you're not controlling for all these variables, but might it be a way in the future to help bring clinical trials down? Or is there a way to restructure that to get the price down on clinical trials? Uh... <laughs> I know I'm way out there, man, but I don't know. I'm stoked to talk to you, Brian. Clinical trials. Yeah, that's um, the, the issue with clinical trials is um, they need to be designed in a way in which you get an unambiguous answer at the end, right? Mm. You want a definitive answer. Uh, and uh, you know, the way basically the, the gold standard are these placebo controlled, double blind, large phase three trials. Um, this has been modified somewhat over the years, primarily from, uh, AIDS activists and cancer activists mm -hmm. so that, um, there are sort of alternative ways of doing things. Um, but until we come up, you know, I'm open, you know, I, I don't do clinical trials, uh, but I think the regulatory, you know, I'm sure the regulatory agencies would be overjoyed to find something that's more effective, uh, faster, uh, cheaper than our current way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, the problem that they run into is that they have to certify that the drug is safe mm. and effective. And, uh, you know, the worst, the worst thing possible would be to have a bunch of things on the market that are simply not safe. Right. I mean, if they're not effective, it's not a huge, you know, it's, it's bad for the patient, but it's not going to cause quote unquote, cause them any harm. It's not going to hurt them in any way. But, um, you know, serious side effects. I I recall the Fenfen uh, mm. thing yep. many years ago. Yeah. Um, we don't want to have something like that again. Mm. Uh, that that was disastrous. Uh, thalidomide, the same thing. So, it's 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 a balancing act. Uh, I just say. Sometime, so I have friends that work for the FDA, people from my lab that used to be in my lab. And again, their goal is, you know, to make sure we have safe and effective medications. That's their goal. Um, they don't have any, they don't have any alternative. Um, right. Motivations or motivation. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, that's all they want. Um, and you know, we just don't right now, we just don't have anything that is that that gives unambiguous conclusions like a similar to a double blind placebo controlled trial, which is, is going to cost a couple hundred million dollars. Basically, Man. they're extremely expensive to do so. Right. That's that's where we are. That is Brian. I I got to say, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, sure. I really enjoy talking to you. This is really fun. That was and great. I, and um, before I let you go, though, where can people find you? Where can they check out some of the things that you're doing at the lab? So you just, the easiest thing is just to Google me. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I think my Wikipedia page comes up and you can get links from there. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the best way. Or you can, you right. can people can email me. I get emails all the time. Just go to you know go to Wikipedia. It will eventually get you to my email address, and then you can you can send me an email. And I I reply to them all, nice. even if even if my reply is I know nothing about this. I can't help you, but here's somebody that really <laughs> knows something about it. <laughs> that's so awesome. It's so awesome to get to talk to somebody who's on the forefront of and been on the forefront for so long that cares about making the world a better place and is willing to talk to people. So I'm truly thankful for that. Sure. And um, hang on one second. I'm going to hang up with the people, but I want to talk to you briefly afterwards. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, thank you so much for today. I hope you all have a beautiful day. It's Monday. I want to tell everybody out there, listen to the voice in your heart and follow it. And um, things will always get better if you have patience. So that's all I got for today. Ladies and gentlemen, aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.